It's great to be with you all. This month, um, the month of October, we have been working through a series on texts of terror. So we stole this phrase from Phyllis Treble, who's a feminist biblical scholar, and she talks about how biblical stories can be used to terrorize people. We've been talking about how the Bible can be looked at as a wisdom book of guidance, not a weaponized rule book of set in stone ethics. And really, whether you're reading the Bible directly or not, interacting with scripture is unavoidable. The Bible is all around us just by being immersed in our culture. So the encouragement that we're leaning into is to collectively help shift the narrative away from terrorizing views and uses of the Bible to more beautiful ones. So today we are focusing in on how the Bible is used for those who are suffering. This may be you as an individual going through a hard time and going to scripture to read it directly. Maybe you're hearing scripture read in some type of worship gathering. Maybe if you come from a more religious background and family, you're hearing your friends and family reference scripture when you're going through it. Or maybe it's just witnessing it come up secondhand. Think Facebook posts and bumper stickers, that kind of thing. So this week's version of terrorizing may feel a little less ill-intended or directly violent, but I'd argue that it's just as much a soul-crushing of an experience, that in the face of suffering, the Bible can be used to minimize pain. It can be painted as the simple or obvious answer to painful experiences, over-spiritualizing a very real and embodied hurt. Well-meaning scripture passages meant to console us and offer peace can fall short, and instead of inc- they can increase the guilt of feeling the pain to begin with. And it's a missed opportunity here because the Bible can also be a deep source of empathy, which is what we're going to focus on today. Because we're all looking for sources of empathy, experiences and relationships where we feel seen and known, We look for this in the music that we listen to, in the content we take in. We want to know that we are not alone. Brené Brown has this really great video. Um, I'll link it in the Discord chat later on. But she, it's a cartoon, like illustrated video where she talks about empathy. And she describes experiences of empathy as someone being in a pit. And sympathy stays at the top of the pit and says things like, oof, looks dark down there, good luck but it doesn't actually enter the dark. Empathy, on the other hand, climbs down into the pit and offers presence. Doesn't necessarily try to fix things or rush the person person out of the pit, but stays with them in the midst of their suffering and acknowledges just how difficult it is. The Bible can be used as a way to silver line things or rush people out of their pain, or it can be a real guide in empathy. So how do we shift the use of the Bible away from minimizing pain and toward empathizing with pain instead? So when we talk about these narrative shifts today, I'm going to suggest um, for us different ways that we can shift the narrative by highlighting some roadblocks that I think we experience when we're searching for empathy. I think all of these we can do to ourselves, maybe unintentionally, especially if you have some internalized religious beliefs that you're sorting through, but we can also experience them at the hand of others. So the first roadblock here is that it's hard to experience empathy when the Bible is over-spiritualized. 
And there's two types of messaging that come to mind for me when we think of the Bible being over-spiritualized. The first is waiting for an afterlife for some type of relief. And the second is placing a lot of weight on miracle stories within scripture. So this message of weight, I don't want to diminish how powerful and sustaining of a belief it can be to think of a day when all suffering will be relieved. This is a message that has sustained communities through incredible hardships. I think of the spirituals that were written and sung in communities that were enslaved and how they've survived and been passed on. Sometimes a tethering belief that there's more beyond a present life of suffering is what's needed just to survive another day. And I also think of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail in which he's addressing white clergy whose messaging has been wait. And they use the Bible to say this, just wait, just be patient. Clergy who thought that they were being helpful and yet were actually just keeping people complacent. And using this word over-spiritualized here, it's because empathy is not a one-size-fits-all. For some, a spiritual hope in heaven may be what is needed to make it through another day of present suffering. But for others, waiting for an afterlife or waiting for God to work in mysterious ways completely brushes over, it spiritually bypasses pain. It's not a comforting message, it's not empathetic. A message that is supposed to feel comforting but actually feels minimizing can create a lot of internal dissonance. And when we look to Jesus, why would he have fought for justice, offered healing, taught messages of liberation, and restored communities in the present if relief of suffering now wasn't important? There's a theological idea of being in the now and not yet, that there's ultimate hope to come, but there's also hope now. And I think that empathy happens in the middle of the now and not yet, and that is what the Bible can offer us. So we have messaging of waiting that over-spiritualizes the Bible, and then we also have the messages of miracles. Stories of the miraculous in scripture are absolutely wild, and they've been used to offer hope to those in need of some type of healing and provision from God. However, a message of trusting in the miracles may not feel all that empathetic and helpful for someone who's experiencing chronic illness or a terminal diagnosis, and what happens when there is loss and grief? Did you not trust enough or have enough faith that God could perform a miracle? Again, empathy is not one size fits all. What feels redemptive and helpful for some of us may not feel redemptive and helpful for all of us. To place your only hope in a miracle is risky, not because the power of God is limited, but because suffering can be relentless and life can be cruel. And I don't want to say any of this to tamper a belief in miracles, but I think in order to shift the narrative toward more beauty and away from what is terrorizing, I think we need to expand our understanding of what is miraculous. Healing may come from unexplainable provision, but that's a pretty narrow picture of how God can be present in suffering. So if we look at scripture now, I want to highlight some stories of the miraculous for us, some miracles of healing. And two reasons for that. It's as a reminder that Jesus cared about relief of suffering now, not just to come, and to help us have a more expansive approach to miracles. 
When we look at the book of Mark, one of the gospels that talks about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is this action-packed chapter that has three back-to-back stories of healing, Mark chapter 5. A man who is said to be demon-possessed is restored, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years is healed, and a little girl who appeared to be dead is brought back to life. When Jesus heals, he draws near to those in pain and responds to their suffering. Yes, the miracle is the healing, and it is also a restoration to community. The demon-possessed man gets peace of mind and goes back to his people. The woman stops bleeding, and she is no longer seen as unclean, untouchable. The little girl gets a future, a life with her family. And these stories can feel like far-off fairy tales to people who feel tortured by their minds, for people who are bleeding and in pain, for the parents of children who have been separated from them or have died. Holding miracles as the standard and only option can minimize pain and further isolate people in their suffering. But shifting the narrative here towards a more empathetic use of scripture can lean into the way that Jesus drew near in the midst of suffering, active suffering. And it's an invitation to go one step further than the crowds and communities of those in pain to offer care and closest during the suffering instead of waiting until after the healing has occurred. Presence and suffering in itself is miraculous. Healing isn't some means to an end for Jesus. The point isn't to use the suffering to increase some religious belief. The weight of the story is on physical relief and communal restoration. Miraculous empathy can look like drawing near in suffering and surrounding those in pain in the immediate. The emphasis is on closeness with God now, not instructions to wait or temptations to over-spiritualize. So our roadblocks, we've got over-spiritualizing the Bible that can get in the way of empathy. Our next one is it's hard to experience empathy when the Bible is used as a formula. And as I was thinking about this this week, I started to realize that I've grown really skeptical of acronyms, things that I picked up in Sunday school and places like that. There's one for pray, praise, repent, ask. I think the Y was yield. I don't know if anyone knows that one. Um, Or I mentioned this one a couple weeks ago, the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Much of life for the sake of efficiency and productivity becomes formulaic and mechanical. And so it makes sense that these, uh, this need for a formula would be projected onto scripture. It would be projected onto the way that we process our faith and grow in understanding. But formulas aren't empathetic. I mean, maybe you really love math and you think so. I'm not one of those people. Formulas don't read as empathetic for me. They give an illusion of control and predictability, but what happens when the input and the output don't compute? This relates to our mechanical view of God versus an organic view of God that we've talked about. That's not a mechanism, this is a relationship. Think of a garden growing and flourishing organically, like Vince prayed for us a moment ago. Not a machine that breaks down and has one set way of being fixed. But this organic view where things grow and die and are pruned away and regrow again. In the midst of pain, it's rarely going to be a formula or a mechanical teaching that is going to comfort someone. 
something with a set input and a promised output. And when we look to scripture here, I think of um, a passage that's found in the book of Matthew. And this is in the middle of a really long series of teachings from Jesus. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, who, everyone who asks receives, anyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. At first glance, this reads like a direct formula. Ask and you receive, seek and you find, knock and doors will open. It reads like a series of certainty, which again, certainty to me doesn't feel very empathetic. Attempting to follow this formula with an expectation of certain results is bound to increase feelings of failure when what you long for doesn't actually come to be. You must not be looking hard enough. You must not be seeking. Have you tried knocking just a little harder? People can be held captive by formulas. If the end result you got isn't what you wanted, you just might not be trying hard enough. And I don't know about you, but try harder doesn't seem like a message of empathy to me. Being stuck in a cycle of feeling like you're not trying hard enough is absolutely exhausting. And it can feel terrorizing when you're caught up in something like a depressive episode or looking for medical answers or life plans just falling to pieces. This is just one example of a formula that may come up in religious contexts, but it goes beyond that too. I think in wider contexts, we're still held captive by this right-wrong binary in a lot of ways. It's so hard to shake the feeling that you aren't just doing this right. Faith, parenting, navigating relationships, work, whatever the this is. We measure by the output and failure can sink in. But there are two things that might be helpful when we're looking at this passage. The first is that this proverb of guidance of, is more about relationship and access, not a formula. Other philosophies at the time, both when Jesus was teaching and when this book was being written, stressed hierarchies and secret knowledge, knowledge that was reserved for a particular people with greater amounts of power. So this is an empowering encouragement against that backdrop. Anyone can go looking, searching, seeking. Anyone can have a, access to a relationship with God. Anyone can pursue deeper understanding. It's not reserved for a select few. Second, while the initial verbs of ask, seek, and knock are emphasized, they're commands in Greek, there isn't the same emphasis on receiving, finding, and door opening. I'd argue that it's actually pretty open-ended, not set in stone. Ask for what? We fill in the gaps here. We ask for help, answers, truth, provision. And when we're not given what we're asked for, either we are failures or God is not good. Neither of those options feel comforting for me. But this is a mechanical view. It's transactional. A relationship with God is filled with interactions, not transactions. In contrast to a God that is this distant, unmoved mover is the language that we've used before, with a set formula that gives you two options, succeed or fail, we have a close God, a most moved mover, who invites our own participation. This is an interaction, not a transaction. Because if the right answers, the right path, the right output isn't already determined, 
This doesn't become a message of personal failure when things don't go to plan. We read in the certainty here. It's an encouragement for anyone and everyone to keep asking, keep seeking and wondering and wrestling, keep participating. It's a message that God is responsive and active, not withholding some undisclosed plan for us. The plan is unfolding actively and we participate in it. So we have the empathy roadblocks of over-spiritualizing formulas. And then the last one for today is it's hard to experience empathy when the Bible is oversimplified. Throughout this series, we've talked about the importance of holding the Bible as a complex collection of books, one with confusion and contradictions and wrestling points. And it's not problematic or diminishing the Bible in any way to hold all of its complexity instead of trying to boil it down to consistent, easy to understand, simple truth. And so if we zoom into smaller sections of scripture or individual verses, I think that there are particular parts that get offered as solutions to suffering that seem to support this idea that it's simple. We get these quick little scripture quote responses to our problems and our suffering. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be anxious about nothing. I know the plans for you, says the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The best mug that I've seen recently actually said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And I love that. I want that mug. But this is the the Facebook post, bumper sticker, fridge magnet, cross-stitched on a pillow kind of sayings that get tossed around in the face of hardships big and small. I wouldn't say that these are terrorizing on their own. They're well-intended. They're easy to remember. They seem universal enough. But life is a whole lot more complex than following or trusting in these simple commands. It's the religious equivalent of telling someone with an anxiety disorder to just take a chill pill. In the survey that we took asking for your suggestion for texts of terror, someone wrote in specifically from Matthew 6, that says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And my biggest question with the simple approach and the use of these texts has always been, okay, but what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean to cast your anxiety on God? How do I suddenly just not worry about tomorrow? Am I just not trying hard enough? Again, increasing all of these feelings of self-doubt and guilt, which in turn increases anxiety or feeling low. It's this vicious cycle. What is meant to point to the comforting presence and provision of God can quickly turn into a spiral of feeling alone and feeling ashamed. It can feel like your complex and nuanced pain is being brushed aside for some simple solution. In the Brené Brown video that I mentioned before, she has something similar talking about empathy where she says empathy doesn't start with at least. It's the same kind of well-intended but dismissive type of thing. How natural it is to want to silver line things. Your friendly reminder that everything that happens, everything happens for a reason is not in the Bible. Again, empathy is not one size fits all, and so maybe a quick scripture verse from a loving voice can be comforting, 
whether now we're in a different season of life, and I don't want to diminish that. But instead of taking these singular instructions and kind of pinning them along a clothesline, perhaps it's more helpful to put them in view of a full and complex Bible. This doesn't mean that you have to go and read the entire Bible to feel like it can be a tool of empathy. But it's helpful to remember that there's more than just these isolated, upbeat quips about casting your cares away. Within the Bible itself, the disciples doubt all the time, and they were right next to Jesus. The writers of the Psalms cry out in anger and feel like they've been abandoned. There's family drama, to say the least, and painful death, and things are often not as they should be. And so hope itself doesn't come from isolated voices of simple fixes, but the fact that there can be messages of, come to me, all you who are weary, and how long, O God, comfort and anger and lament side by side shows us that the complexity of suffering is in the Bible. It isn't simple, and there isn't some simple biblical fix. I want to offer us here some interpretive suggestions. We've been trying to do this each week so that we don't feed into this narrative that there's one right way to read scripture. So take what is useful here. And this week in particular, I think it could be for interpreting the Bible directly, if that's how you're reading it, but also interpreting the words that are being spoken to you in suffering, or maybe that you hear being spoken around you for someone else's suffering. Again, if our task here is to shift the narrative around the Bible from terrorizing to beautiful so that we can pass along a more beautiful tradition, we want to have some practical tools. So these interpretive options this week are actually just two questions that you can ask yourself when you have encounters with the Bible. They're pretty simple. The first is, is this good news? Is this good news? A really practical question to see if you are filtering what you're encountering through a lens of love. Good news is going to look different for all of us, so I get how subjective this is. But when we look to Jesus and how he interacted with those who are suffering, he always centered the ones in pain. Are the words you are saying, are the words you hear others saying, centering the ones in pain? Is the interpretation of the Bible you are coming to centering the ones in pain? Is this good news for a select few, or is it good news for all people? And good news just isn't some mental or spiritual thing. It's embodied action. For the man who was possessed by demons and the woman who was bleeding and the child who was dead, good news meant radical healing and provision. So from a place of empathy, active empathy, are we offering good news of radical healing and provision? When you come across a story or a psalm, a teaching of Jesus or a writing from Paul, and it doesn't seem like good news, it's an invitation to pause. And this is where we can take up some of the suggestions that we've given in the previous weeks. When you pause, who are some of your go-to people to wrestle with? what Rachel Held Evans calls your cover artists. Who do you go to in order to learn more? And when you pause, when things don't seem like good news, maybe you put it on the shelf for a while. You don't throw out the entirety of the Bible or all of Christianity, but you give yourself some breathing room. You put it on the shelf. 
I would love if this question could act as a filter for some of the Christian rhetoric that gets tossed around. A simple pause to say, is this good news? We can implement it in our own lives with what we are listening to and reading. And if you have the bandwidth to do so, it could also be an invitation to ask someone else, is that good news when you hear the Bible being referenced in a potentially harmful way? So that's our first question for interpreting. And our second question is, what else? I think that this question, what else, helps us combat the oversimplifying, formulaic approach to interacting with scripture. When we ask what else, we're acknowledging that there's more out there in the Bible or elsewhere that we can hold in tension with whatever's being narrowed in on. What's out there beyond that verse or two that's being offered in the midst of suffering? For example, you or someone you love is going through something like a depressive episode. It feels impossible to get out of. You're down in the pit and it's lonely and at times terrifying. You've got verses that might get tossed around like, fear not, I am with you. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. And messages along that line may be helpful. Letting go of fear, anxiety being relieved, you won't fall like we sang this morning. However, maybe messaging that comes out of verses like this feels a bit distant and unhelpful. Confidence and joy is not easy to come by when you can barely get out of bed. This doesn't mean that the Bible stops being helpful or stops being a source of empathy. We can ask what else? Across the scope of narratives and poetry and scripture, we've got the full array of human emotion. And the real gift is that we have authors experiencing this full array of emotion that are all trying to figure out how to relate to God. So when we ask what else, we get to see that the complexity that's in the Bible lets it be resilient and helpful and a source of empathy. And all of the cast your cares on him and do not be anxious, when we ask what else, we get things like Psalm 88. This is a lament psalm, and it's not particularly hopeful. It says things like, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am one without strength. Not super hopeful. Not the same as cast your cares and anxieties on him. This psalm expresses anger toward God for feeling so low. The last line is actually, darkness is my closest friend. And it wouldn't look particularly cute on a mug or a cross-stitched pillow, but maybe darkness is my closest friend feels strangely more comforting than fear not, I am with you. We get to hold both of those at the same time because the Bible is complex and resilient and empathetic. These two questions, is this good news? And what else can help us find deeper sources of empathy within the Bible? It can help us shift away from minimizing pain and toward a more beautiful and complex understanding of the empathy that scripture can offer us, the empathy that we can in turn offer one another and offer ourselves. Would you pray with me? Jesus, some days we can sing, she will not fall, and it can feel true. And some days we may be resting in a place of darkness is my closest friend. 
we are longing for empathy. The people we care about are longing for empathy. And so we look to you as one who draws near in the midst of suffering, who does not over-spiritualize or bypass pain, but sits within the pain. And God, I'm grateful that scripture and the stories that we share with one another can be a source of hope in this, that we have a guide beyond ourselves, that we have a source of hope and empathy beyond ourselves. Would we be aware of your active presence in the midst of suffering? Would our words and our actions and our relationships point to that source of empathy? When darkness feels like the closest friend, would we know that you are closest as well? And God, would we interrupt the narratives around the Bible that minimize or gloss over real and true pain? Would you help us know when we can interrupt, interrupt with, is this good news? Would you help us pass on a more beautiful and empathetic tradition? Amen.